Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Well, what's up, what's up, what's up? Oh, what's up, what's up, what's up? Oh, what's up, what's up, what's up? You know, the weirdest oh, up, thing... Up, okay, up, the weird up. thing is, oh, what's because, up, what's because up, I'm hearing up. you say oh, that... Up, in, stop! Up, because I'm hearing you say that in headphones, because I'm in a different studio. I'm in Southampton. I've started half-term early, mm-hmm. and I, but I can't see you. Just hearing you do that, I realise that it's actually creepier than when I'm in the room and I can see you doing it. <laughs> it, it is, And that's probably... That's what all the podcast listeners will be getting, that sense of creepiness. How about if I did it no, don't do in that. my... No, don't do that. Outside... Don't in, do that. No. No. What's up? <laughs> no, actually, that's like a benevolent version of that voice. You've done a much creepier oh, okay. version of that voice before. <laughs> Yeah, but that was with the aid of helium. Uh, no, now, that. we should point out that you, we, not are not, we are not recommending that anybody inhale helium. No, that's obviously right. It's one of those... Because I used to do uh, school chats you about this. You used to do helium. About, about this. No, I didn't <laughs> so used to do helium. <laughs> but, it, so here you go, 98% of uh, the universe is made of... Is it 98% or 90%? Anyway, 90 or 98% of the universe is basically made of two elements. Yes. Okay. Hydrogen and helium. Everything else is jostling for the rest of it. Right. So I'm doing all this stuff to to, uh, to schools. So we're basically all completely full of helium the whole time. Yeah. And the thing is, we're running out of helium. And so. Hang on, is it really? Yes, we're running out of helium. So you kind of shouldn't uh, do the whole breathy thing. It's just that you know that everybody does. Are you serious? We are genuinely running out of helium. Yes. How, sorry. Explain to me firstly how that's the case and how we can. Replace the helium. We can't replace helium. I don't think. Don't know. Can I don't. Know. Is it possible to make helium? I don't think it is, so, because it is one of the elements. And as you know, the definition of an element is something that cannot be made any simpler. No, I didn't know that. No, well, that's what it is. So you basically, so water is not an element because it's made of hydrogen and oxygen. Okay. Right. Uh, so you can split it and you can make it simpler. Right. Whereas an element is something that cannot be made any simpler, chemically speaking. So, helium is an element and it's number two and it, we're running out of it and i can't remember why we're running out of it it's just that we are and officially you're not supposed to inhale it from the balloon i don't think it's enormously damaging it's just you know it's probably better to okay but sorry I, don't I, do I, it, you know. but i what i don't understand is if it's because, an element if it's an element yes. right if we're running out of it that means that that we're that we're depleting it but then if you can deplete something you must also be able to create it why well, because because in a in any in any system, in any enclosed system, the amount of things in that system remain constant. So the so the things that make helium helium must be. You know what you 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 know what I'm not I'm not saying a stupid thing. If if you can deplete it, then surely you can replete it. Mm-hmm. Is that not right? I, there is a limit to my knowledge here. Right. All I'm all I'm I'm telling you what I know. When we all run it's out abundant, of helium, you know, it's will abund- our voices all go lower and will we become heavier? It's abundant in the universe, but I, but I think we're, but it's rare on Earth, which is really our main concern. It's no use saying, do you know what? There's loads of party helium on Alpha <laughs> Centauri or Sirius, no. but it's a little rare on Earth. Okay, so. But do we need to round up all those people that are making party balloons out of helium and get their helium off of them? No, I think they're entitled. I think they're probably entitled. To it. This is really good. Okay. By the way. I think this is first-class science talking. Jim Alcalilli, eat your heart out. Yeah. This is uh, this is the real McCoy. Anyway, all that stuff I told you is genuinely true. By the way, 
okay and i like the fact that's because you've said it's genuinely true now i just take it as fact that it's genuinely true okay great that's brilliant thanks very much it's genuinely true uh okay uh shall i do this because this is what a number of people have been stopping me in the street and saying to say and it's put into words by kim marshall uh, LTL and FTE and so on. We've been listening to you for years, both here in the UK live and here in Australia via podcasts. Uh, I don't know why it can be here in the UK and here in Australia, because unless they're in, they are neutrinos that are writing in, a little bit more science, they can't be in two places at the same Isn't time. Isn't a neutrino is technically a, 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 a particle moving backwards in time? Let me just say, says Mr Kim, before we get completely isolated in our science ignorance, let me just say we're a few weeks behind in the podcast. My husband Dean and I listen to you every week whilst we're travelling from our apartment in Melbourne to our weekend hideaway in the country and back. We only have 100 kilometres each way to travel, so once we've caught up on our day's activities, we put on the podcast. We usually only have about half an hour or so to listen to you, depending on our urge to engage with one another. I'm not sure I like the sound <laughs> of that. <laughs> <laughs> Stop that immediately. Fnar. As you'll appreciate, some days... Honk, quack. Exactly. I'm more communicative than others. So here's the thing. Last night, we heard your Mystic Mark broadcast and chuckled enthusiastically at Mark's prediction. He declared yeah, there was no way Donald Trump would secure the Republican nomination. He hasn't nomination. got it yet. And we just hoped that he was right. Imagine our distress when this morning on ABC Radio we heard that Mr Trump had received the required number of ballots yeah, and he's... would likely be the Republican candidate. With respect, we suggest you fire Mystic Mark ASAP unless subsequently uh, the predictions have already forced this demise. Anyway, uh, so that's he's true. Got, it is true that he's got the correct number of whatever it is. is. Yes. But is he has he actually got it yet? I don't no, think he, he hasn't, hasn't been officially declared the candidate. Yeah. But not happening, not happening, not happening. La, 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 la. Not looking, not listening, not playing this game. And Not so, happening. And But you started the game. <laughs> it's your game. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen, Simon? I think he'll get the nomination. I can't... How is it possible to have any other, any other conclusion? What with everyone else having dropped out is... Oh, I see. That's your, that's, that's, that's your argument. What with everybody else having dropped well, out? There is no other candidate. And so, therefore, and he's got the required number of ballots. And so, therefore, Mystic Mark? Not going to happen. It's still not going to happen. Not going to happen. Because? Because history doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like what? Like that. Doesn't, not how it works. What people voting and things doesn't work like that. It, I, you know, I'm just, you can, we can, you can, you can go around this as many times <laughs> as you want, but it's not going to happen. All right? Okay. It's just not going to happen. And that's the beginning and end of it. Okay. Well, I think let's. Let I'm glad we cleared that up. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, this from Holly Ope, who's in Putney, age 27. Dearest Hearts, I have recently been turned on to your program by my boyfriend, who who has <laughs> another honk and another quack. Who has is been, it going to be? Is it going to be this this endless sauciness all the, all the way through the show? Do you think? I don't know. Been an avid member of your church for many years. When we first got together. I was aware of his love of film, but when he used to tell me that his boys had told him whether a film was good or not, I ignorantly thought he meant his friends from work or his friends from university. Then when he spoke out about the church, I worried he was getting part of some bizarre cult or religion I'd never heard of. You're right, Holly, he has. It wasn't until I went to a screening of Horrible Bosses 2... And he asked me to look out for the good doctor and to say hello to Jason for no reason, and I decided for my relationship... Oh, no, for my relationship to go to the next level, 
I would need to listen to your podcast. So she had like an incentive. Right. A year on, and now I'm downloading your back catalogue of perfectly worded shows to keep me company during dog walks, car rides, and most recently, a trip to Dorset on my own. Makes it sound as though it's some kind of scary thing. Even though me and the boyfriend have recently gone through a tough time, when he told me that he had the iWitter app and I said, but he wasn't in North Korea, it seemed to cement our relationship all over again. So I'd like to say thank you for your hours of joy and laughter as well as educating me in the ways of the church. I've been to see films I wouldn't normally think of going to because of your show and for that, thank you very much indeed. So how about that? Uh, So we've actually, and the headline on the email is thank you for cementing my relationship. Very good. Do you think we could do marriage guidance or relationship counselling? Well, I think in many ways we're sort of already doing that, aren't we? I mean, we've had, have we we had a wittertainment marriage? Yeah, I think a we marriage. Have. Yes, don't you remember because that. Yes, came, because we have. Of course, we have. Yes, out of the entertainment coma came yeah, out, exactly. <laughs> came forth the entertainment marriage. Have there been any entertainment children? Uh, not technically. I bet there have been children as a result of relationships formed whilst listening to this. Oh, there was. I told you there <laughs> was. A, there, there was a lovely phrase when um, I was listening to, to, to the Radcliffe and McConey show on Six Music, of which I'm a big fan, and they said this thing that this that this uh, couple listened to Radcliffe and McConey and they listened to it in the afternoon and they had somehow their children had taken it that when they said we're going to listen to Radcliffe and McConey they had imagined that it was actually a euphemism for something oh, really? other than yes and so Radcliffe and McConey became a special cuddle well we're on at the same time yes well, yeah but we probably cater to a to a different audience well I a little bit extra uh, advice is needed for Alastair Coates okay. before we move on to the uh, to the main body of the show. Excited to have Jodie Foster on, by the way. Yeah. Um, Alastair says, I'm writing regarding a surreal experience I had at my local flicks and the Code of Conduct. I was at my local cinema in Japan, trying to be as thoughtful as possible. I scoffed down my popcorn before the film started. I tried my hardest not to suck the bottom of the cup from its side. It is also second nature to switch off my phone when entering the pictures so I could be at peace with fellow movie fans. Everything okay so far? Yeah, fine. Fine. Anyway, I went to a late showing of The Revenant. It was released months later in Japan. I still can't figure out why this always happens. At exactly the same time that the first shot appeared on the screen, an earthquake happened. No one was injured, adds Alistair. Blimey. This threw me, but I don't mean literally. For about a three-second period, I thought I was in one of those hideous 4D screenings. Other cinema goers hadn't switched off their phones, however. They'd put them on airplane mode. So their earthquake alarms went off. This is an app which you can have on your phone in Japan. The quake lasted for about 30 seconds, and all I could think of for a short while was... Did this break the code of conduct? Should phones be switched off, even if you're expecting an earthquake? From yours, slightly shaken but not stirred, Ali in Chiba in Japan. So is it okay to leave your phone on if that's the way your earthquake alarm will be up and running in case there's an earthquake? Okay. My only worry about this is, I mean, yes, that obviously makes a lot of sense, but we've already had so much flack for saying it's okay for doctors or surgeons to leave their mobiles on. And if now it's becoming earthquake, I can see very quickly the cracks starting to appear, but not, but not in the cinema, not in the cinema. Thank you very much. No pun intended. So I think I'm going to say no, no, it's not. 
So, but, but, but then, then I know that we're going to get a whole bunch of people saying, "Well, that, that's absolutely outrageous." But I think we have to say no, because the presumably the, the Earth, thin end of the wedge, Simon. It is, but the earthquake. At, well, I'm not immediately sure. Is Alistair realised there was an earthquake because everything shook? Yeah. So, at what stage did the app users? know about the earthquake because presumably they knew about it as soon as the cinema started the the assumption must be that the app gives you an extra few seconds knowledge does it well i don't know otherwise you know the, the building shaking and quaking is enough for anybody i'd have thought yes well i'm still saying no still saying no i'm still okay, saying so no even yes. in japan just because you're in an earthquake zone doesn't mean well, you hang on, no, 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 no. Okay, fine. Well, maybe we start making it geographically. Oh, I don't know. I, I you, you, you were, you were part and parcel of this yes. code of conduct. What do you think, Simon? I think. Um, plus, there's the other thing: is that in some traditions, maybe mm. in Japan, you take your shoes off when you go to the cinema, and that's against the code as well. But you already no. But you said you because it was your the, the the no shoes thing in cinema was yours. They keep your shoes on, and then you said unless you're in Japan, in which case carry on okay so, so you said, in fact the very first caveat to the code is cultural what and was you cultural sensitivity well in which case for cult, for reasons of cultural sensitivity if you live in a certified earthquake zone as certified by the universal earthquake authority organization yes if you are genuine like so that's no one in the uk for example but if you live in japan or on the san andreas fault you are allowed to wear your. You're allowed to have your phone on, on airplane mode only because the earthquake app operates. Okay. Oh, okay. So the airplane, the the, the earthquake app operates even if you've got it on off, that's not the, silent, but actually uh, actually on airplane mode. Yeah, that's the that's what Alistair seems to be suggesting. All right. Okay. Fine. Well, in that case, in that case, yes. Okay. Is that but the condition? The condition is that if your earthquake app goes off. You don't just exit the cinema. You do stand up and say to everybody, I have an earthquake app and it's just gone off. And remember also that you, you're not wearing shoes because yeah. you don't want to be leaving the cinema <laughs> in your socks and stockings. <laughs> stocking feet. Not stocking. stocking. <laughs> Unless it's a Rocky Horror Show screening, in, in which, which case, case, as you were. Everyone, fine. Good. Well, I'm glad all that's sort Good. of sorted out. Shall we do the show now then? Okay, let's do that. I'm in the normal place, and Mark's in his uh, luxury suite. I'm in Southampton. I've started half-term early. Have you kind of built this into your house? So a <laughs> bit right. like Because Jonathan Dimbleby can do this. He just goes in the shed in his garden, so he's got any broadcasting. Well, John Peel used to broadcast Peel from Acres. Peel Acres, That's very famously, so is, I think. Is this the way it's going to be? No, this is. I'm actually in Southampton. Although uh, I'm in, I'm in Southampton BBC Radio Solent. But brilliantly, usually they put me in the broom cupboard. But now, after how many show, how many years has this show been going now, Simon? Um, Fifteen. After I'm all told. this time, they went. You know what? We think we can put you in a proper studio. So I'm now in a proper studio. It's really nice. I feel like I've been let out. Well, um, fine. Except it makes people who enjoy the show on the webcam. Yes, it's going to be a boring webcam experience because well, it's, it's basically me. going to be you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you could know. get either Robin or Simon to sit in the chair where I usually sit and wave their arms around. Yeah, the Sophie and Jamie. Remember, we've got a very big team. Yeah, well, you could get either of them as well. That might be quite interesting because at least it would give the camera team something else to cut to when yes. they're just fed up of looking at me all the time. Yeah. So, that, so maybe you could take it as a rotor. Sophie first, then Jamie do a bit, then Simon Paul do a bit, and then yeah. Robin do a bit. Get that sorted, really. And then yeah. we could get a procession of people from the world at one who have got nothing to do because it's ten past 
I'm sure Rory, Ke- Rory Kethan Jones at some point would drop in because he usually does. That's right. He, he usually always... bangs on the yeah. mirror on the window outside. He tries to be a part of of the success of this show and Nihal as well. He 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 often wanders. Past he often the does. Network, he often so. does. Tom Hiddleston, he comes by all the time with his guitar. And just actually, to play a few banging tunes. I'm looking out at the newsroom. They're all listening to us anyway. So okay. if they want to kind of, if any sort of top correspondents just want to wander past and sit where you say nothing, I don't want them to say anything. Yeah. Even if you're John Simpson, you're not. You can't just contribute. You just need to sit there where Mark sits. Okay. And just and just listen and Emily Maitlis, if you'd like to come in and just <laughs> sit in Mark's seat, that's going to be perfectly fine. Peter Hunt, we've we've seen. Well, You're just going to name every the, single. Well, the thing about Peter is he's just very funny. So actually, he could come in. Might be funnier and, than and me. Tell us the latest stuff. He could that's actually going do. The, he could do the thing. He could update us on the royal family. Cornelius Lysick could do it. Anybody could do it. He could, but they have to be physically here. Okay. Cornelius is never here. Here's a thing from uh, Chris Stewart, who's in York, but used to be in Sydney. Now this is relevant. Okay. I am writing as a very recent member of the church. I'm the tall one hovering awkwardly at the back. Having recently moved to the UK from Australia, I am learning the ways of the Wittitainee. Yes. I've been practising my wasps. I'm ready to greet Jason at any time, and I've memorised the code. Okay. I do have one major problem, and I don't think anyone else has had this problem. I need your help to sort it out. Normally, when one listens to people on the radio or a podcast, one has no concrete image of the face from which the voice is emerging. And so one mentally paints a suitable face to go with the voice. In your case, though, your voices come with faces pre-chosen. Care of the picture used with the podcast. There you are, Kermode and Mayo, or Mayo and Kermode. Now, the trouble is, which witterer is which? In my mind... I immediately and unconsciously allocated each face to a voice and have listened to your podcast for months now, fully certain in myself about who was saying what. Imagine my horror, Kel O'Hur, when then I recently watched a video from your website. And it turned out the other way round. No, 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 no. Somehow Simon's voice was coming from Mark's face (laughs) and vice versa. (laughs) Gentlemen, this simply will not do. You're going to have to do either to learn to do passable impressions of one another's voices or else borrow the plot device from the 1997 Cage Travolta masterpiece. Face off. Face off. I leave the decision entirely in your own capable hands. So- Can I tell you that, that I have a... There's a comparable version of this, which is before I ever saw them, I, I had a, a couple of records by The Jam, you know, picture records. Yes. And because when you look at the, at the Jam, it, Bruce Foxton looked like the more important one. Because he had the slightly more sort of pompadour hair, yes, you know, and so I must have listened to sort of three or four jam records before seeing them and realizing that it was the other bloke doing all the work, doing all the singing, and that's really really troubled me that Bruce Foxton wasn't Paul Weller, because clearly when you look at those early pictures of the jam, I mean, there's the one with the glasses on, so he's obviously the drummer, but of the other two, there's Bruce Foxton who is obviously the front man. Okay, yes, that's that's. I can imagine that that's... Uh, I can't imagine anyone looking at your face and thinking of my voice coming out of it, though. And I can, Nor can I imagine anyone looking at my hair and thinking of your voice coming out of it. Anyway, Chris Stewart, may, maybe it's Chris Stewart's problem. Maybe Chris is just a little bit strange. Well, everyone's a little bit strange. That's People true. are strange when you're a stranger. Uh, Alexina Gannon. I started listening to your programme late last year. I'm 76. It takes some of us some time to get round to the important things in life. I belong to the group who go to a gym and guffaw a good deal when listening to your podcast, so thank you very much. I just wish Mark would stop saying he can't remember anything. He's only 52, after all. I don't remember ever saying that. 
There you go, exactly. Thank you. Like many others in Dorchester, I went to Florence Foster Jenkins the other day. As you say, a delight and a tour de force from Merrill and the rest of the cast. I think Stephen Frears summed it up perfectly when he said he found the script hilarious and heartbreaking. Was up, or whatever it is you say. I've got no idea what it means, but it sounds jolly. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. I just want one more, and the box office top ten coming up, and then it's Jodie Foster. Uh, Freddie Thompson. Uh, I started listening. This is going to make you feel old, Mark. Yes. Freddie says, I started listening to you around the age of 12. This week, I'll be listening live as I finish my final year university exams on Thursday afternoon. And with it, full-time education. Uh, You two have been my haven of entertainment and sanctuary from stress during GCSEs, hires, uh, A-levels, four years of university exams, or in Mark's language, you've been with me through The Devils, The Breakfast Club and Animal House. (laughs) Please give a big wass-up to all those still stuck in exams and to those of us fortunate enough to have finished, you could even consider adding a graduate's grotto to the church. Which is probably a good idea. Freddie, hopefully soon to be BA honours in Arabic and IR. Wow. So how about that? So, um, the box office top ten. Are you up for this? I'm ready, yes. Uh, there's quite a lot of stuff about Sing Street as well. Good, which I'm really glad about because it's been quite hard for people to track it down and yeah, see it. because it's not in the top ten. No, because it's playing in, in very few cinemas. And I've had so many people get in touch say, you know, where can I see it? Why is it that it's not got a wider opening? And, I, you know, I mean, I can't explain it. It's, it's, it's clearly such a great film, and I, I don't understand why it's not playing in more cinemas. OK. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that, but it's not in the top ten, so we won't do it here. Uh, at ten is Thomas and Friends, The Great Race. Well, you know, it's funny because we talked about this uh, last week, and I, I, I thought it was perfectly fine. It was, uh, uh, it's like, it's essentially, it's an hour, hour a bit long, and it's... Uh, a, a, as it says, and it's a great race. And what happens is Thomas wants to go to the great race, but he can't do. He's got all these other things to do. But he falls in with these other engines who are sort of fantastically decorated, and he has lots of adventures with them. And then when, when the film was being made, there were some people sniffing and saying, "Oh well, you know, it's multicultural now, and you know what's happened to us." Well, it's great, good for it. Its messages are all good ones. They're all about being yourself and following, you know, your own lights, and that good will out. And it's very good natured. And I thought the animation was perfectly fine. And uh, there is a British and American dub, obviously a British dub over here. I liked it. I mean, you know, it is what it is. If you have a, if you have young viewers that wanted to go and see Thomas on the big screen, this absolutely does what it says on the tin. I have no problem with it at all. Aidan McCarthy, uh, I found myself at a Sunday morning screening of TAF TGR, as all the cool kids are calling it. That's T A F TGR. Thomas and Friends, the Great Race. And while it definitely, oh, I see, fine, fine, very yeah, good. While it wasn't for me, mind you, the whole point of a an abbreviation kind of loses its point really <laughs> if you have to read it and explain it. it while it definitely wasn't for me the three and a half year old with me thought it was perfectly good 12 hours previously I'd watched the recent Evil Dead remake on DVD and I'm struggling to think of two more contrasting films yeah. that I've watched consecutively the three and a half year old was asleep for that one <laughs> which is probably just as well uh, uh, 28 days later Secret Cinemas again I think nine, we've covered that yeah, our kind of traitors number eight this is an interesting case. I, I really went into our kind of trade with low expectations, and I was really pleasantly surprised by it. It's an old-fashioned thriller, um, which has a sort of modern sheen on it. It has some great performances. Actually, I think the whole ensemble cast is pretty good. And it did exactly the thing that a thriller is meant to do. It got its uh, its hooks into me, and I remember thinking very clearly halfway through, wow, I'm, I'm gripped. I want to know what happens to these people. I care about it. And considering that actually it's a fairly straightforward story, about a guy 
guy who gets dragged into something which is much bigger than he expects and as he starts to be dragged into this he starts to discover sides to his personality and the personality of his wife that he didn't know about before it's a fairly traditional story but i thought it was told with panache and flair and i did enjoy it Dr. David Vesey says, Arcana Traitor left me feeling indifferent, which in a way is the film's biggest problem. It is fairly lightweight in comparison to other recent adaptations of John le Carre's work, notably Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy and the recent television series of The Night Manager. Ewan McGregor is horribly miscast, Naomi Harris is criminally underused, Damien Lewis's impression of Mr Chumley Warner becomes irritating after about two minutes and only Stellan Skarsgård gets to do something interesting with his character. It's not bad, just somewhat middle of the road and unmemorable yeah i mean i've heard other people say that and i disagree with them oh really yes that's very challenging there we go i'm not being challenging i'm just saying i know i have heard that criticism that it's middle of the road but i thought as i said went in expecting something to be middle of the road and thought it was much more gripping than that uh florence foster jenkins is at number seven um as a celebration of uh of an exam being done in our house yesterday we said let's go to the pictures and we went to see florence foster jenkins so this is now my uh second run it and i just loved it and the thing that i liked even more about it the second time round was how poignant this you know how absolutely three-dimensional Hugh Grant's performance is because it's a really complicated role because essentially what he has to do is to, to make you engage him and love him and believe that he loves Florence Foster Jenkins despite the fact that he's also leading this sort of dual life in this apartment with his you know with his younger girlfriend Meryl Streep's fabulous but I think it is one of those films where there was almost nobody in the cinema because it was in the middle of the week and middle of the afternoon but it is one of those films in which the first time you see it, what you're struck by is the comedy and all the rest of it. But there is an awful lot of poignancy, and uh, I mean, I I cried. I really, really cried. You cry came, at everything. No, no, but particularly it, it, that is true. But particularly with this Simon, it really did, and I know it affected you too. I, I know you were slightly more reserved about it than I was. I loved it. I really loved it. And I really hope people will seek it out and go and see it because it's a really, really good piece of work. Yeah, it didn't affect me in the way you're implying. No. No. Okay, well, I, then you're just heartless. Yes, yes, probably that's that's almost certainly true. Okay, uh, hologram for the kings at uh, number six. I mean, this didn't affect me at all. I, I kind of quite enjoyed bits of it, but I do think it's a, it's it's overall a failure. Tom Hanks is if you're going to cast somebody as sort of the everyman schlubby kind of guy, then he's the perfect guy. But the problem is the, the film can't quite decide what it's trying to be. And I got the sense all the way through that you were watching an adaptation of a book. And the book would make sense, but the film somehow didn't. So he is in Saudi and he is trying to set up this uh, virtual reality IT system in a city that hasn't been built yet by a king who isn't there. And whilst he's doing this, his life is starting to unravel and he's going through a kind of midlife crisis. And there are things in it that are individually very great, really, really good elements of his character. I think is the most interesting character and there's an extraordinary sequence at the beginning which is kind of a riff on once in a lifetime but it does feel like a collection of parts that said tom hanks himself when he's directing makes movies that feel like that sometimes and good for him for doing them it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a movie that's treading water it doesn't work for me but there are, there are enough things in it that are interesting to make it worthwhile. He's still welcome back any time he chooses. He is. He's a, he's and a the podcast of him uh, on the show, which was uh, which is last week, still available. 
Uh, David Anning in East Lothian. On a rare night with no childcare responsibilities, my wife and I decided to take in a showing of Tom Hanks' new film at the Dominion in Edinburgh, one of our favourite cinemas. We went with no prior knowledge of the film or storyline, but banked on it being Tom Hanks, so it must be okay. The night started badly with a torrential downpour, meaning our pre-movie meal was abandoned and we resorted to a sandwich in the car. Still not to worry, we thought there's still Tom to look forward to. But how wrong we were. What a disappointment the film turned out to be. I've since heard the interview with Tom and uh, Mark's subsequent review. I can only say Mark was being very generous. It's very hard to explain. The film isn't bad. It's simply really boring. Perhaps the book is better than the film is dreary, slow and dull, despite Tom's best efforts. The romance was probably the only thing that was well handled. It was sympathetically filmed with two mature actors. A bizarre film, but my overall impression is of being totally bored and mostly disinterested in the story uh, and the characters. Uh, Nadim in Manchester, home of the best universities in the world, according to Nadim. Technically, isn't isn't it uninterested? Thank you. I've just watched Tom Hanks in Hologram for the King. What an amazing film. I found it funny, genuine. Having travelled to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, I can say that this film captures the feel of Saudi and the Saudi attitude very well. I also was lucky enough to visit Mecca for the pilgrimage, and when in the film Tom Hanks' character enters the city, it made me laugh so hard, I thought I would be asked to leave the theatre. <laughs> this, Which is interesting, because you know, if you've, uh, cause everyone is saying, well, I, I think we said in the, in the interview never seen a movie that's basically set in Saudi before and clearly they've got all of that stuff according to Nadim exactly right yeah this film was uh, was to me only spoilt in the third act by the unnecessary snorkeling <laughs> otherwise an excellent an excellent movie <laughs> not a euphemism an excellent movie with Tom at his best and Alexander Black providing a great non-stereotypical portrayal of Muslims I would highly recommend this film to all 10 out of 10 because the weird thing about the, the unnecessary snorkelling is that that sequence is actually quite oddly moving not least because at one point it seems to refer back to Splash I mean I'm sure unintentionally because I'm sure that's exact, that's in the novel um but it, I, I, I didn't mind. I didn't think the snorkeling was unnecessary. I thought actually that element of the story was one of the more was one of the, the stronger elements. Didn't you? Why are you laughing? Uh, it's definitely going to be a phrase for unnecessary on. snorkeling. Yeah, there was a scene Up about halfway Radcliffe through and when really there was some unnecessary <laughs> snorkeling. Um, so hologram for kings at six. Bad neighbors two is at five. Which I thought weirdly enough, in terms of its gender politics, was more uh, forward looking than everybody wants some. Which I notice isn't in the uh, isn't in the top ten. Um, I will re- refer you back to that uh, lovely uh, marquee picture that somebody took which said everybody wants some Florence, Florence Foster Jenkins, and that's pretty much how I felt about it. Captain America Civil War, number four. I mean, a lot of costume characters, um, a lot of running, a lot of not making any sense. The more I think, I mean, the more I think about Captain America Civil War, the, and I, you know, I have thought about it quite a lot, the, the less sense it makes. I wonder whether the it, we, we've now been, whether enough time has now passed for me to ask a question which might be a plot spoiler, okay? okay. So I'm going to ask a question if you don't want to go forward a minute, right. but... When Ant-Man does the thing, how come he's not fantastically weak? Okay, moving on. Okay, thanks very much. Um, uh, Jungle Book is at three. Loved it, as did you. Angry Birds is at two. Well, oddly enough, I mean, considering that it's Angry Birds, the movie, it's it was perfectly passable and there is a couple of moments in it that I you know chuckled and enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to and they've somehow managed to string at least the semblance of a plot together out of it and I it didn't bother me I mean it's, you know it's not it's not good but it's not bad either 
And the UK's number one movie is X-Men Apocalypse. I'll go first. Okay. And you fill in the gaps. Yeah, gaps. fine. Veronica from Dorchester with a cheap cinema. Dear Inigo and Fezzik, uh, at last, as a parent, I'm rarely in the position of having seen a film within six months of The Good Doctor's review, but on Sunday, my husband and I extended date night to include a movie and made it X-Men Apocalypse. I have a long and complicated history with the X-Men franchise. Huge fan of the TV cartoons and comics. I find myself beyond excited every time an X-Men movie comes out. And every time, it's a crushing disappointment. The complexities of the characters, their interactions, the rich subtext of the themes involved make X-Men one of the few franchises that could have rivaled the profundity of Nolan's Batman films. And yet... Almost without exception, they are total toilet. I can't pinpoint why. Maybe... I have never heard anybody other than me use that phrase. And Duncan Cooper. That that is weird. I have never heard anybody other than me and Duncan Cooper use the phrase to- total toilet. I didn't realise it was in popular parlance. The first ten minutes in Egypt positively enraged me. The closest I can come to say is that the plot to action special effects ratio totally off. Thirty seconds of plot, nine and a half minutes of big impressive things crashing into each other. It made the last hour of Superman, Man of Steel, look like an excellent exercise in movie making pith <laughs> unbelievably it went from bad to worse with movie making pith fantastic actors like Jennifer Lawrence and James McAvoy having to do having little to do and making a pig's ear of even that Michael Fassbender was the exception spending chunks of the film emoting till veins seemed to be popping out of his head the final straw came when Olivia Munn's is it you pronounce it Psylocke uh, yes. A Psylocke outfit was revealed. I spent the rest of the movie breaking the code by furiously whispering, oh, for God's sake, to my husband every time she came on with her cronies and they got more and more covered up while her dominatrix outfit seemed higher cut with each take. I'm aware that the comic book outfit, uh, it's a comic book outfit, but since no one else wore theirs, this chance seemed to, this choice seemed a little purient. Prurient, Prurient. I'm all for revealing outfits, nudity and gratuitous everything. I just like it to be democratically shared out. Um, Alice Parkin. Uh, one of my earliest formative cinema experiences was seeing Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 at the age of 12. Uh, and I have keenly followed the franchise ever since. Over the years, I've, however, found myself falling out of love with later efforts. It was therefore with little hope I settled down to watch X-Men Apocalypse. And for the first half an hour, it seemed like I had every right to be cautious. However, as the film got into its swing, I found myself pleasantly tugged along by it, smiling in the funny bits and feeling genuinely sad in the sad bits. In the saddy bits. The film re- regrettably suffered from the wanton in- inconsequential destruction that's become par for the course in Marvel films of late. Definitely was let down by a wobbly plot, but I came out of it with a smile on my face and a hope for the franchise again at last. Just do one more. Uh, Becky Dalton, having been a big fan of the X-Men films. I was looking forward to the latest instalment. Alas, X-Men Origins or X2, this was not. Uh, There were numerous rehashes of scenes from previous films, leaving this one feeling like a badly put-together jigsaw. Yes, there are some funny lines from Professor X. Yes, there were some kick-ass moments from Mystique, but it's Jennifer Lawrence kind of expected. And I'm mildly intrigued by some of the new versions of old characters, but overall bloated, unoriginal, distinctly average. Okay. Well, anything to add? No, I mean, I think average is the kind of is the key thing for me. I didn't think it was anything like as uh, good as Captain America: Civil War. I thought it was more fun than Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice, and I thought it was it was average. That it it does have sort of gargantuanly foolish levels of destruction, which are totally weightless and mean nothing at all and the only it was funny because actually you know like all these films it has a 12 certificate and the the the, the most 12 certificate moments were the sort of slashy stabby stuff which actually i did think was quite full-on 
for a 12 certificate movie but when it came to just absolutely global wide catastrophe it, 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 it's not that interesting i mean I, it really didn't make much sense whatsoever but it's kind of you know it's kind of mid-range sort of in the middle nothing like as good as uh, captain america civil war but not quite as bad as batman versus superman dawn of justice okay uh so what are you going to review in the next half hour well the next thing's going to happen is jodie foster is going to come on and talk about her movie and I think we're going to review that and anything else after that? Well, in, in that half an hour, it depends how long Jodie Foster is. Well, let's see, because you never know how long she might want to talk for. OK. You know exactly how long she wants to talk for, because she's already done it. Yeah, 14 minutes, 32 seconds. Thank anyway, you. <laughs> uh, Lewis has uh, maybe come up with an answer for your Ant-Man inquiry. Yeah. You will find pages upon pages on the internet of people debating why Ant-Man doesn't lose okay, his strength. No, 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 when he does the thing, don't say what the thing is, because some people haven't seen it yet. Um, I don't. Uh, okay, that's why. That's why I was so careful Fine. not to say what well, it was. What I'm saying is, uh, lots of discussion on the internet. Of people debating why Ant Man doesn't, doesn't lose, lose his strength. strength when he does the thing. General yeah. consensus is that pim particles move in mysterious ways. I don't think that's given anything. Okay, fine. Is that all right? Yeah, that'll do. All right, fine. that'll do. Right, okay, so uh, let's talk to Jodie Foster because uh, she has a new movie out. Uh, she's the director uh, of this movie. Uh, the movie is Money Monster. First of all, we're going to uh, play you a clip. This, uh, this particular extract has George Clooney and Jack O'Connell. Right. I want everyone to know something, but I'm not the real criminal. It's people like these guys. They're stealing everything from us and they're getting away with it too. Nobody's asking how. Nobody's asking why. I didn't steal anything from you. You gotta open your eyes out there. I mean, it's not like the government's no help. Hell, they just look the other way since after they're done stealing our money, they barely even have to pay any taxes on it. Hey, let me ask you this. Shut up, Lee! Shut up! I came here to talk! Shut up for two minutes! And that's a clip from Money Monster. It's the new Jodie Foster movie. Jodie, hello. How are you? Hi there. Thank Good you. To see you this thank morning. you. Thank you very much, indeed, for spending uh, some time with us. Tell us. Uh, tell us about Money Monster. Tell us about the story, and then we'll see where we go from there. Well, um, there is a, a sort of a showman, uh, financial news host, plays by played by George Clooney, who is a little bit lost. He comes on with dancing girls. He doesn't really know who he is. He's just one big persona, and um, he has been selling this one stock. The stock happens to have a glitch, and people lose millions and eight hundred million dollars over the course of nine minutes. And uh, one disgruntled stockholder who put all of his money—the only money that he had—he put it on this one stock, lost everything. He comes on the show with a, a gun and a bomb, and he defies everyone to explain to him what happened to his money. Played by Jack O'Connell. Yes, played by Jack O'Connell. Does the character come from Queens? Yes, he does. Now Jack comes from Derby. Yes, he does. In the East Midlands. Yes, I of can't understand Kingdom. a word he says. Right. Okay. How tough is it to do Queens? A Queens <laughs> accent. Well, Suarez, it sounds great. He's amazing, honestly. He's he's impeccable, right? impeccable accent. Um, but you know, that's just the parlor trick of it all. I think uh, it's it's really his acting. I mean, he's just a phenomenally authentic, true, genuine actor, and uh, so committed. I'm so so lucky to have him in the film. Because we'll, we'll get to George Clooney and Julia Roberts in a minute. Because no one is going to go, oh, you know, no, no one will be surprised that they're in the movie. <laughs> but they might be surprised that you know that that Jack is in it because presumably you weren't looking for an English actor I wasn't looking for an English actor and I wasn't looking for a young actor I mean we the part was written for somebody who was 35 and up and um, I, I I wasn't even keen on seeing him and he sent in an audition tape and I, I just was never able to look elsewhere I mean it's just amazing what an amazing performance because he has to express he's sort of like key obviously one of the he's one of the main players but he's sort of key to our understanding 
of the movie yeah. because he has to express a rage yeah. which a lot of people are feeling. Now, obviously, he's committed a terrible crime in, in the process, mm. but in this country on the news, you know, we're following your election and we mm. see what's happening to Bernie Sanders supporters and, and Trump supporters, and there is a rage going on. Mm. And your man, Jack O'Connell, has to stand in front of the camera mm. and for us, even though he's got a gun and even though he's got a bomb, for us to be going... Okay, you've got a point. Yeah, well, he is the everyman character, and he, when he first comes on, he is unstable and threatening and dangerous, and um, we're left off kilter because he is so filled with rage, and um, and he isn't an intellectual. You know, he doesn't have the vocabulary or the money or the power or any of the abilities that other people might have to defend himself, and so he he really uses the only thing that he knows at his, which is the wrong thing, but the only thing that he knows um, at his disposal at this point, and. And um, interestingly, by the end of the movie, you know, he goes through all sorts of different changes. And by the end of the movie, you really understand him and love him. And and um, and you realize he's the wisest person in the room. The interesting thing is, let me phrase that slightly differently. Mm -hmm. Direct action works. Mm. If you follow the rules, maybe you get ignored. If you break the rules, you get noticed. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know if that's my philosophy. I'm not much of a spokesman for uh, for activism, but um, but I, it really is all about the characters uh, for me, and that's why why I make movies. It's all about the characters, and in, in this instance, you have somebody who's mad, and uh, like a lot of people are, like a lot of people are in America and in Europe, they did all the right things. He did all the right things. He he worked hard. He paid his taxes. He took care of his mom. He invested his money wisely in something that was said to be the safest bet that he could find. And he got screwed. And um, he, 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 he isn't even, you know, the threat isn't, you know, give me my money back. The threat is you just explain to me where it went. And uh, some of that is about his feelings about himself, his feelings of failure and uh, of being made to feel small and stupid uh, by our incredibly overcomplicated financial system that, that, that's engineered to uh, to stay so complicated to keep people away so that the people that write the rules can benefit from them. If I asked you to explain a trading algorithm, <laughs> which is a key plot point, would you would you be able to do that? I absolutely no. I okay. don't understand any of that. And I've read many, many books and done lots of research. Um, uh, my puny mind will never be able to wrap myself around it. But it's, you know, our financial system is created that way. Um, and now ever more so by computers and algorithms that um, have overtaken the financial world. And it's done that specifically so that the middlemen who invented these overly complicated rules can benefit from them directly financially. When did uh, George Clooney and Julia Roberts get on board this story? Well, um, we worked on the script for a very long time, producers and myself and a new writer named Jamie Linden, and uh, we did a, you know, brought a lot of layers to the project, and we got it just right with no financing involved so that when it was perfect, we could bring it to an actor and an actor would say yes, and that's kind of what happened. We brought it to George Clooney. He said yes. He jumped on board. He called his friend Julia Roberts. And, <laughs> that's uh, very helpful. <laughs> yeah, I thought she'd say no. I said just, you know, get a quick no from her, and uh, she loved it, and so she jumped on board after that. And Julia Roberts, she's playing the TV director. Yes. Uh, and what's so intriguing about their relationship? I mean, we know they, they've been in other movies together, and they clear, there clearly is chemistry between them, but we hardly ever see them together on screen. That's right. They're only on screen, actually physically on screen together in the first minute of the movie and the last minute of the movie. But but strangely and interestingly, throughout the film, they are together virtually. And in our society, in our world right now, 
virtual intimacy feels closer than being in the same room. She is in his ear in an earpiece, and so she's speaking to him the whole time, and he looks down the barrel of a television broadcast camera, and so he's looking directly at her monitor. Um, they may be, they're actually 15 feet from each other, but they're closed off from one another. She's in a control room, and he's on the stage. They're very funny. They're very funny. Except, they're very close I mean, together. Yeah, you know, never, amazing dynamic. It's like a little voodoo thing that the two of them have together that none of us really understand. Because it is a thriller and it is satire, but it is laugh out loud funny. Yeah, I am. I, it has a little bit of everything in it. You know, that's something that I love in movies that you 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 can make something that's entertaining, that's for general audiences, that's that's a thriller, incredibly fast paced. It's the fastest movie I've ever seen or ever made, and yet it has a it's a real personal story. And it has humor and it has a lot of intelligent layers. I mean, it requires a lot of the audience and, and people have really jumped on board with that. And I wonder if we would like George Clooney's character even less in the first half of the movie <laughs> uh, if it wasn't for Julia Roberts. You know, we, we kind of we, we see George through Julia's eyes, really, and her, yep. her cutting comments. Yeah, Lee Gates's character is a jerk. You know, he's uh, egotistical. He doesn't care about anybody else. He's lost his responsibility as a journalist. Um, he's just a showman who comes on with dancing girls and drinks too much. A blowhard, as we call them in the United States. And um, she believes in him. I mean, you know, she knows he's an, he's an idiot and she may <laughs> jump off his show at any time, but she cares about about him. And that faith that she has in him as time goes on during the course of the story, he really lives up to. In some ways, she is the one who is producing his survival, who unravels the mysteries, who does the job that the cops can't do. And together, they kind of form one hero. When you were formulating the script, as you said, you know, you had it for, for a while and you worked on it for a long time. Did Julia's role get changed very much? Did Because I can imagine another director would make the TV director very much a kind of an almost yeah. an irrelevant character. The first scripts, the TV director was quite irrelevant. She just said, go to one, go to two, go to three, and that was it. Uh, even before, long before we brought Julia on, it was important for me to really make that char- character deeper, to, to, to create a full character, and... Um, to have that dynamic between the two of them be strong in the film. Uh, then once Julia came on, we did even more work on that. And I, I guess I tend to do that uh, even with the, the roles that I act in. I, I very rarely ever find a female part that's just fully fleshed. So I always have to spend a lot of time, you know, making it deeper. You, uh, will we see you act again? Absolutely. I don't know when, but you will see me act at some point. I mean, I've, I've been acting for 50 years, so I can't imagine that somehow I'm just going to stop now, cold turkey. Um, but I'm, it's important for me to focus on the directing now. I, I, um, I've only directed four movies over the course of, you know, since I, since I was 27, so a long career. And I raised two kids, of course, and did lots of movies as an, as an actress. But um, now's really the time for me to focus on directing. Is this the most ambitious film you've done? I think this is technically the most ambitious movie. As a director. Movie. Yeah, as a director. It's technically the most ambitious movie I've ever done. Um, it's a big jigsaw puzzle. And I honestly, I'm not sure that the audience will notice because, um, because the seams are so finely woven. Um, uh, a, a movie that happens in real time, uh, so it happens in over the course of two hours, and the movie is an hour and a half long, um, virtually in real time, uh, where you have one event that's being broadcast on, there's four different cameras that are capturing it, uh, broadcast cameras, and then there's a film camera, and then you have monitors in the control room, and you have monitors everywhere in the world that's watching it, including the command unit where the police are and different coffee shops in Korea and South Africa and Iceland, all over the world. 
Um, but we film a movie over the course of, you know, 45 to 50 days. And to figure all of that out, where are you going to be? What edit? You had to figure out the editing before you even started the film. Hmm. Here's the thing, Jodie. We spend a lot of time on this uh, on this show talking about movies, almost all of them kicking in at two hours and 45 yes. minutes. It's, yes. it's the new normal. Yes. And we've often said that very few movies could be would suffer if they had 30 minutes taken away from right. them i'm with you i i like you short make sure you but you make short movies now this is a movie as, you, as you've mentioned it's 90 minutes that's right how is that even possible oh it could have been shorter <laughs> i'm always <laughs> extending my movies um you know with credits because i i find it very hard to meet the hour and a half length i like very verbal films and i like films that are fast-paced and that make you think and that have intricate uh, weavings of character and plot so yeah, I have no desire to make long movies. I like watching them sometimes, epics. Uh, it's worthwhile to have that experience, but um, it's just not my voice as a filmmaker. Well, I'm intrigued about it is that I mean, I checked it afterwards, you know, that it is 90 minutes because it doesn't feel like a 90-minute movie. There's an awful lot going on. You know, it's there's lots of words. It's a very complicated movie that has a lot of different layers. And, um, you know, I embrace that. I like that. And, and there are plenty of times where people... Uh, People were worried about that. You know, they like their genres nice and tidy. They like to have a film that's just a thriller or a film that's just a comedy or or that's all emotional. I believe that our lives are rich and um, I have a lot to say. <laughs> I, I talk a lot and I have a lot to say. And um, I feel a lot as well. And I just don't feel as a filmmaker that I have to choose between the two. And when you have a lot to say, do you think, uh, I mean, because you've uh, directed House of Cards, an episode, yes. and mm-hmm. uh, Orange is the New, New Black, Black, which is, you know, what a fantastic series that was. And the book was was terrific. Right. D- does TV appeal just as much if you've got a lot to say? Is that a, uh, an easier and quicker? And, you know, if you want to make 60-minute mm-hmm. films, you're going to end up in television. Well, I like television because it's fast. It's fast-paced. And that's, you know, it's easy for me to work in that milieu. And I get to work in all sorts. I can, I can do a thriller. I can do a comedy. I can do dramedy. I can do, you know, all sorts of things on television and then jump back and forth between them. Um, but it's not a, the same investment unless you're exec producing as well. So as a director on television, you're more for hire. You're coming in to execute and to serve uh, the vision of someone else. So, you know, I like going back and forth between the two. But features allow you to have the film be entirely your vision, uh, entirely your signature that's about the things that you find meaningful. Sorry, was that word you used, dramedy? Dramedy, yes. Is that is that a thing? Is, is, does it exist or did I just make it up? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of know. I understand what you're saying. Anyway, it so... It does exist, and uh, it's something that I do in all my movies. I can't seem to tell a story that's meaningful or personal to me without laughing at it. Um, and I also, you know, like dramatic things that happen. So I, I have to do a combination of both. And lots of people, myself included, struggle with that tone because um, you have to figure out how to keep the audience moved and with your characters in terms of the drama, but you also have to figure out where you can fit in the comedy so it's not so broad that it doesn't distract from the drama. Jodie Foster, we appreciate your time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Mark, Money Monster. Yeah, not Jodie Foster, but me, sadly. Um, When you start thinking about a film which has this kind of plot, you know, immediately you'd start thinking perhaps of uh, something like The Big Short. In fact, actually, in terms of its style and tone, this begins uh, like a kind of overcranked version of broadcast news and then segues into something like Network. And then after that follows a path which will lead it you know, alongside some of the themes of Dog Day Afternoon about, you know, crimes that then become sort of media events. And also, I think, therefore, 
you know, on a road towards uh, King of Comedy. And although I don't think for one minute that actually this this film is in the same league as those movies, what I do think it is, is very entertaining and very snappily directed. And it was interesting, you know, we were talking there about the 90-minute thing. It is actually a perfect 90-minute thriller with comedic elements. There is such a word as dramedy. It has been used quite a lot. It's, a, it's not a word that I like, but it is definitely a word which is, which is in parlance. And the reason it works is twofold. Well, threefold, actually. For me, firstly, because I think that Jodie Foster does do a very good job of keeping that. I mean, it feels pacey. It feels real time. I know it isn't, but that's kind of the sense that you get from it. Secondly, I mean, George Clooney is a charismatic performer who does very well at playing this smarmy character who's, she said at the beginning, he's kind of lost. He's, he, he doesn't really know what he's doing. But what he does know is that he's charismatic. He's annoying. He's uh, he's full of himself. He's, you know, one of those... He's a blowhard. What a good word yeah, that is. Yeah, exactly. A word that we don't really use here. So I'm not going to use it. But yes, that's, a, he's that, a blowhard, that's, that's how he's Mark. described. I'm going to say it all the time. But now. in that uh, equation, when he's on, it's an awfully big ask for Jack O'Connell to to do as well as he does. And I think Jack O'Connell is brilliant. If you look at Jack O'Connell in things like 71, you look at him in Startup. I mean, he is an electrifying screen presence, and every minute that he's on screen you believe in what it is that he's doing this whole thing about saying I need an answer and I'm not going until I get one and the chemistry between him and George Clooney with this kind of strange third leg which is that Julia Roberts who's the producer ends up virtually directing the crisis which is why I say you know network is something which is sort of lurking in the background of all this and inevitably uh the plot starts to test credulity in its third act (laughs) you reckon no no just a little yeah but What's impressive is that up until that point, I thought it was actually doing pretty well. And because it is a 90-minute B-movie thriller with an intelligent script, with an A-list cast that's referring to uh, to other films which I like very much, I never found myself... I never found the, the, the credibility gap actually detracting from my enjoyment of it. If you think about something like Red Eye, it has a similar sort of feel to it. Um... Actually, Red Eye was a really terrific thrill. I must watch that again. So what I thought you got was this kind of uh, well-thought-out, smart drama that falls apart and doesn't actually make any sense, but is moving fast enough that you don't really start to to recognise how much it isn't making sense until the very end has gone. And En Route is sort of just, just... nodding towards larger themes and it's not really about economic collapse what it's really about is about television and the media and the manipulation of the media and the way in which something can become a media event and particularly because of that running time thing and because it really sort of belts along like that and because Jack O'Connell is such a mesmerising presence actually I bought into it, I enjoyed it I mean yes there are things that are, that, are, that, are, that are wrong with it and make no sense but I was never bored I loved the performances particularly Jack O'Connell and I thought that Jodie Foster did a sort of crisp cracking job of just cutting to the chase and directing the heck out of it I agree with all of that except that it wasn't tense I don't think it okay. was all of those things but not particularly tense would you say I thought it was tenser than you think okay This can be continued as we discuss (laughs) Money Monster and there's some correspondence on that. Uh, Plus, we get to review other movies, including... Uh, Including uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass uh, and uh, Love and Friendship and Warcraft and more. 85058 Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Neil Francis in Glasgow, just out of an early showing of Money Monster. My verdict, a very enjoyable piece of Friday, Saturday night popcorn with a few nice comments made about the social media melting pot that we all immerse ourselves in. Um... 
Then take you along with solid performances all round. You have to love Clooney's comedy dancing in his show's opening. Uh, above standard action thrill affair. Felt there was a slight lull in the middle, but the third act grasps the audience's interest again. OK. When the action is... That one definitely recommended. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, it was the third act that both you and I felt was credulity testing I, yeah. too much so. Well, there is a moment where I, I think I might even have said out loud... Oh, really? No, I, I really <laughs> don't think this is, this is going to happen. Uh, anyway, a couple of school-related items. Yes. Um, this from Mr Flynn. I'm a primary school teacher, Mark and Simon. Uh, he says, Dear Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, which makes me... The Funky Bunch. Primary school teacher at school in Ponders End in Enfield in London. Now that SATs are over, and thanks for the support, I found myself rather listless for the week, with no past exam questions to dissect, no last-minute revision sessions to plan, therefore decided to conduct a study to determine my children's favourite movies, before turning the data into a series of Life of Pi charts, as he calls them. <laughs> Very good. I was keen to find out whether the children would be able to discern between high-quality fare, like in Side Out and Zootopia, or whether their tastes would be more skewed towards the Krang Bash Wass Up of BVS Dodge and the like. The results are illuminating. The clear winner was Jungle Book, followed by Minions. BVS Dodge does make an appearance, although I believe the best review of the movie I've heard so far, with respect to Mark, was given by an eel, an English as an additional language student. <laughs> right. not, who, not an eel. <laughs> no, an English as an additional language student, okay. eel students, who said... Why is Mr Superman so sad? He can fly. It seems <laughs> it seems school children have just as good a viewing habit as Doctor Strange. That's, that's brilliant. And here's my favourite new phrase that for you, Mark. Yeah. Okay, here's another good phrase. Go as good a viewing habits as Doctor Strange gloves himself. And that's you. <laughs> so it's Jungle Book 11, Minion 7, Inside Out 5, BVS Dodge 4, Frozen 2, Pirates of the Caribbean 4. And he says, I was tempted to give a detention to the one child who said that her favourite movie was Pirates of the Caribbean 4. But since there's nothing in school rules about bad taste, I just made, <laughs> her, I just made her the pencil monitor for the rest of the term. <laughs> uh, one more school reference and then okay. on with the show. On with Alice Through the Looking Glass. Daniel Woodrow, head teacher of St Gregory CVC uh, Primary School. Dear Princess and Little Bamboo, I was, I'll be the bamboo, I was wondering if you could give a huge wass-up to the Animates Movie Club here at St Gregory's Primary School in Sudbury in Suffolk. We're a group of avid film lovers aged between 8 and 10. We meet each week to watch a selection of films. Uh, you're going to like this email, by the way. Mm. We use a range of animation styles. So far, we've watched and loved Song of the Sea, The Iron Giant, Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. All of these are brilliant. Um... Yes, this week we finished the tale of Princess Kaguya. Oh yeah, which is so wonderful. Which led to an interesting discussion on whether or not it was science fiction. Uh, because, yeah. quote, they come from the moon, but they haven't got lasers or spaceships. But this is a beautiful, fantastic science fiction, not shouty, flashy, bang-bang science fiction, and so on. These were the comments that we got. There is Could a, Mark settle this dispute once and for all? Well, there is a sort of... Well, it, I mean, technically, no, because it's, you know, it's based on an ancient uh, legend, but there is a live-action adaptation... Well, there's more than one live-action. There's at least one live-action ad adaptation which does see it as more of a science fiction movie. Um, you know, Princess of the Moon. It's that sort of thing. So I think I think it is absolutely arguable that it is it is science fiction. It is actually technically you know a, 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 an ancient legend. But then you know, the f fantasy and fable and sci-fi are, are so closely connected that as soon as you start trying to pick anything apart like that, it, you realise that those boundaries. I mean, we were talking recently about Green Room, and the question is: Is Green Room a horror film or a thriller, or is it a horror thriller? Um, it's both of those things. So I would say that I would n absolutely not discount reading it as sci-fi. 
Uh, the Animates Movie Club at St Gregory's have taken a solemn vow never to watch another Transformers movie or even own a lunchbox with its logo on, Very which good. is quite amazing. And, uh, and Daniel says it's been a real honour working alongside these code followers of the future each week and a mention on the BBC's flagship film show would be a lovely way to send us off on half term. So, well, there we are. So thank you very much indeed. Maybe one of the finest schools in the whole of Suffolk, you have to say. But you'd also have to say that other schools in Suffolk is, are available. Yeah, but maybe you'd want to find this one. Okay. Possibly. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, anyway, uh, lots of correspondence coming in. Mail at bbc.co.uk. By the way, disinterested is perfectly fine. No, I th- is it disinterested means unbiased. Disinterested does have the subordinate meaning of uninterested. So you can use it. No, does it? Yes, I'm just saying. Checked okay, it, checked it. Oh, it okay, fine, fine, fine. Well, I, I, I will take your word for Thank it. In that you case, very much. it's not mine. It's just, it's the it's, that's the word of the. It's editor. just the word of of the truth. And, okay, and, and the truth. In that case, I stand corrected. Eight five zero five eight. What else is out, please? So Alice through the Looking Glass, which is sort of a sequel to. Um, Alice in Wonderland, which, as you remember, was just an enormous hit, uh, essentially sort of reuniting the old team, although this time Tim Burton um, takes a production role rather than director's role. Uh, James Bobbin is now James Bobbin is now the director. And we begin with Alice, Mia Vasikovska. That's right, isn't it? Vasikovska. We've discussed this so many times. Yes. That is correct. Um, basically captaining uh, a, a ship, captaining... Um, this uh, this wonderful ship outrunning pirates ship is called the Wanda and she demonstrates herself in the early sequences of the film to be a fantastic uh, sea captain who can do the most incredible manoeuvres uh, when she returns home however London 1875 finds that her, her mother is in dire straits in terms of uh, the house and finance and the company are demanding that she either uh, lose her house or to save the house that she sells the Wanda back to them she sells her father's ship back to them and uh, she will then be confined to a desk job she will become a clerk so it's set up very early on that what the story is about is about her as a woman and the the things that she is allowed to do and the things that she isn't allowed to do she comes back with tales of having travelled the world and with uh, you know extraordinary costumes from around the world and is everywhere sneered at by society for doing something which she's not supposed to do. The uh, the board are all uh, old fossils and inevitably uh, Alice ends up escaping through a looking glass back into Wonderland. And when she's in Wonderland, she discovers that all is not good. The Mad Hatter has fallen into depression about the loss of his family and... The only way to raise his spirits, the only way to reignite the spark is by playing with time itself, to go back in time and change a terrible Jabberwocky event that happened in the past. Here's a clip. Hatter? Hatter? It's you. You're you again. Well, if I'm not, I wish I was. Have we met? Yes. No, I mean, not yet. It's funny, I feel I shouldn't know you. Well, we have met once, when I was younger. Oh, well, I'm afraid I don't recall. That's because it hasn't happened yet. Oh, when will it happen? Years from now, when you're older. I'll meet you when you're younger and I'm older. I realise it doesn't make much sense. Makes perfect sense to me. I'm Karen. I know, I'm Alice. Alice? You seem to have time all mixed up. So uh, Johnny Depp there as a Hatter, who, who although you know it has a sort of starring role in the poster, is not actually starring role in, in the film itself. 
so what happens is she has to i mean he's you know he's an important role in it but he's not the main character so basically what she has to do is to go back in time and travel the uh, the channels of time in order to change the past but if and the reason she's able to do this is because she's in wonderland she doesn't have a past in wonderland but if anybody actually from wonderland goes back in time and meets themselves past will cancel that future it will become very very doctor who so for my reservations first there is something about this series which feels very kind of manufactured i mean it's not just to do with the sort of the level of um the cgi and special effects the whole thing does have a kind of a corporate feel to it which immediately sort of makes one start to feel slightly suspicious of it as a you know as a proper integral work and it's certainly not a film that owes that much to the source material what it is however is a film which is a PG certificate film, which is aimed at a fairly wide audience, which absolutely prioritises all the way through the idea that Alice is the uh, author of her own destiny. That It's a film which very explicitly talks about her role as the motivating factor in these adventures. And it's a film which very, very self-consciously, but I think quite effectively, sort of empowers her and challenges that you know standard idea that actually she's not allowed to do this i mean it does this very very explicitly because she comes back she's told that this is not something that she can do because of her gender so firstly i, I like that about it and i often get criticized for this but i can't you know i like it i like that about it second thing is there are some nice performances i think mia vaskoska is very very uh watchable uh helena bottom carter is back uh, as <clears throat> as the, the the red queen although this time bec- partly to do with the sort of sympathies of the narrative we get to see how it is that she became bad. So you kind of start doing a kind of Wicked style. You remember Wicked? We reviewed the film, I know it's from a stage show, but a Wicked style origin story about how everybody got into the place that they got into. And the film, what it wants to do is to sort of dole out to characters that you think of as being necessarily bad some reason for how they got to being what they are. And I think I mean, she's good fun. And actually the backstory works better than it could have done. And then Sasha Baron Cohen playing Time. And the interesting thing about Sasha Sasha Baron Cohen playing time is that every time Sasha Baron Cohen does one of these performances, one of these kind of cartoony caricature performances, you with you know there's a key thing that you say, oh he's doing that. Well in this, he's decided to play time basically as Werner Herzog, and the question of whether or not you find that funny is going to be something very personal. I have to say I did, and I'm not the world's well, greatest. They could have Sasha, got you to do. They could have got me to do Werner Herzog, yes, but but actually Sasha Baron Cohen doing it was funny, and it was a peculiar thing because. I thought at the beginning, I'm not sure whether this performance is going to work or whether it's something that's going to, to, to I'm going to find irritating. But actually, I didn't. It did work. It was a big pantomime caricature performance in which Werner Herzog is basically in charge of all time ever, and includes the pronunciation of words like "my invincible machine," which turns out not to be quite so invincible. So, I enjoyed it. I kind of thought it was. It, it's its heart was in the right place although that heart feels very corporate and very franchisey the performances were as engaging as it's possible to be within that sort of very very uh controlled artificial landscape i have to say i'm not crazy about the the johnny depp performance but it wasn't first time round either i mean i found that if anything to be slightly two-mannered and i was quite relieved that for a long portion of the film he was uh, you know he, he was off screen and i thought um mia wasikowska was very engaging and presented a, a, a you know a heroine who you could root for and i think it'll do well oddly enough 
I think I actually enjoyed it more than the first one. Um, I'm still, it's still for me something which, as I said, feels rather corporate and franchising because it is. But I liked it. Is that a bad thing to be franchisey? Well, no. As I was just trying to say, it's like it's it, no, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And I did enjoy this for what it was. I don't think it's you know, I I I, I think there, are, it would be very, it'd be very easy to be alienated from it because you just because it looks so much like a great big corporate production because it is but i did still find within that characters and ideas that i liked and that i support and i enjoyed it uh i just think it might be worth a moment to mention sing street just because it's not in the yes, box please office do, top 10 please do please do and it's last it was last week's uh, movie of the week yes and some people have found it harley cave says simon mark i'm a long-time listener etc first time and so forth and i want to share my thoughts on sing street i love this film Loved, 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 loved this film. I loved it. I loved this film. Loved, loved, loved. Loved, loved, loved. I loved this film. The performances were all fantastic. I found the relationship between the two brothers deeply moving. Watching it a second time, I enjoyed noticing the little lines and melodies that would eventually blossom into songs later in the film. And speaking of songs, wow, I cannot stop humming Drive It Like You Stole It. I don't think I've ever been as affected by a film in my life. It really is wonderful. I love this film. I loved it, loved it, loved it. I love this film. Brilliant. I'm so glad. I'm so, so glad. James, I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it too. James Kirkpatrick. Um, recently, myself and girlfriend attended a screening of Sing Street at the brilliant Grosvenor Cinema. Mark's review had set my standards extremely high and the film more than exceeded them. The Good. story was so wonderfully told with amazing acting, even better music. The Dublin presented by John Carney is an oppressive, limiting environment, little more than an extension of the school our heroes strive to escape from, with few shots showing the huge expanse of the city, keeping the audience's focus on what the characters see. This stretches to the British mainland too, only glimpsed at an extremely far-off distance which I found myself struggling to see. And this shows the film's genius. It allows the audience to focus solely on the characters as the characters are focusing on each each other, whether that is the interpersonal relationships between Connor's family members, the relationship between tormentors at school and his father. I adored this film. I adored it, adored it, and so on. My, by far the best film of this year by my standards and one of the best depictions of teenage life I have ever seen, embellishing slightly, but that's how everyone seems to remember their teenage years. Uh, and Maureen O'Donoghue, when I heard the review of Sing Street in the podcast, I was just finishing my lunch. On Saturday, I checked the listings at my local cinema, found it was due to start in 10 minutes' time. I got round there just in time to take my seat as the last advert was ending. I loved this film. This is a recurring it is, isn't it? Do you think there's a general love theme going on? It wasn't on a film about a band. It was much more than that. It was about brothers and families and finding out about what someone is really like, what lies behind the image someone constructs to face the world. The band was fun and the school was believably awful. I loved how the band members' appearances each time they were shown arriving at school told you which bands they were currently watching and listening to. The song Drive It Like You Stole It has proved catchy enough to stay with me. It's a shame the rave reviews are out long after the film was shown in Northern Ireland cinemas. I'm finding that relatives and friends there didn't see it but would like to now. So they've clearly, maybe this is going to clean up on streaming and DVDs and so on. I mean, all I can say is, you know, please, you know, do try and see it. And more cinemas, please show it because it's such a a great film. It's so uplifting. It's so joyous. It's, you know, and I, 
I just loved it to pieces. I really, really loved it. And how great that other people you know, feel the same way. A couple of hours ago, we were speaking to uh, Ellie uh, when we were just trailing ahead for the programme, and you said we would be looking forward to... Yeah to Warcraft. Has that moment come? Okay, yes, it has. So the thing with Warcraft is um, Warcraft The Beginning, which is the new film by Duncan Jones, which opens in the UK on Monday. It's been being screened this week. And originally there was an embargo on reviews until uh, Monday, although the national pressure of it isn't actually until Tuesday. And then come Wednesday, suddenly everybody started reviewing it. The reason appears to have been because the film's actually opened. The film uh, right now, as far as we can tell, is playing in Egypt, France, Indonesia, Philippines, uh, Azerbaijan, Germany, I mean, loads and loads of places. And it has so far been reviewed in Total Film, Hollywood Reporter, Empire, Time Out, London Telegraph, Variety, Guardian. So... The embargo was then apparently lifted. This puts everybody in a slightly awkward position. Firstly, because the, 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 there is a problem with it. You know, embargoes are either on or they're not. And if they're not going to be enforced, anyway, whatever, that's another argument. But I'm aware that we're talking about the film before it opens on Monday. So I want to be rather circumspect about what I say because I don't want to spoil the enjoyment for anybody who's kind of, you know, gearing you won't, up. Mark. No, 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 but I'm just... Okay, fine. So... Um, the first thing it's necessary to say is that I have never played Warcraft. I know nothing of the game at all, and I have nothing invested in it. Um, unlike something like Assassin's Creed, which has been played a lot in my house, although not by me because I'm not a gamer, I don't know anything of the world other than that it's, it's this huge big thing, and I, it means an awful lot to people. So what I have to say about it is absolutely from a point of view of ignorance of the original material. Um, what I do know is that Duncan Jones is a filmmaker who I admire very much and who... In the case of Moon, basically had a drama that consisted of, you know, two people. And in the case of Source Code, uh, was taking a, a repetitive time frame and looking again and again at a single situation. And I thought, you know, doing all that rather brilliantly. Here, what he's doing is taking on an existing juggernaut, a behemoth, something that absolutely by its very nature uh, relies on huge uh, special effects and something which has an enormous amount of baggage and uh, essentially what you have therefore is going to be a filmmaker battling with a franchise and you know how much of Duncan Jones are we going to get out of this and I have to say that having seen it the answer is more than I expected and um uh, the plot, I mean, I, I won't attempt to do a plot synopsis other than that you need to know it's orcs, tyrannical warlord, um, uh, driven by green mist, passing through a portal into the land of Azeroth to make battle and conquer. The rest of it, I'm not going to discuss the plot because if you, know, if you want to know, it's all out there and you can find it. And to be honest with you, I'm not the right person to attempt to do a plot synopsis. But the recurrent phrase is from light comes darkness and from darkness light. And what I liked about the film was that it's a film with you know, orcs and humans and battles and fantasy worlds. There's a one uh, shot in which we kind of move around between battlefields, which seems to be sort of very video gaming. But what I liked was it seemed to give everybody and everyone and everything a pretty fair crack of the whip in terms of the design i mean you've already seen all the pictures so you know for you know there's a touch of mad max fury road in the design there's you know a creature with two skulls and intertwined backbones that he wears as a sort of you know cape and uh, shoulder pads there are orcs with massive hands and tiny heads giant hammers smash-tastic fight sequences i mean you know great big powerful sweeping cgi scenes that obviously refer make you start thinking about lord of the rings there's a you know, mountain passes which will make you think of Lord of the Rings journeys there are things which will evoke the Battle of Helm's Deep or the Battle of the Five Armies and when compared to that what one notices is the absence of the thing that those Lord of the Rings movies had which was the the sort of the, the hobbity charm however what you do have is a film which 
I, at times reminded me of Planet of the Apes and at times reminded me of John, Carpenter, uh, John Carter. When I was watching it, I kept thinking, you know, it would be possible to watch this and think this is just John Carter. But there are so many defenders of John Carter. I was somebody who never got John Carter, but the people who really did get John Carter really stand by it. I found myself effectively on that side of the fence that what I, I found myself actually being emotionally engaged in it because what the story has is a recurrent theme of parents and children of male and female being equally powerful uh a film in which parenthood is uh, parented and parent uh, and parent child uh strifes are equally balanced across the opposing armies a film in which on both sides of the divide we actually get something approaching proper character development here's a clip oh it's good to see trees again uh. <laughs> Down the snow. Even from a distance. Remember when we would track blood ox through the frost wind dunes? It was always meat. Always life. You don't think it's strange that we lost our home when Gul'dan came to power? One orc cannot kill a world or a time. Are you sure? Look around you. Does it not remind you of something? Wherever Gul'dan works his magic, the land dies. If our people are to make a home here, my friend, Gul'dan must be stopped. We are not powerful enough to defeat Gul'dan. No. But with the human cell, we could be. Mark? Yes? Did, did that sound a little bit like Fat Harry White? <laughs> it sounds as though got, they got a, an actor's voice and they took it down a couple of notches in a very speed. Well, now that you've said that, that's going to be stuck in my head forever. Okay. So um, anyway, so my overall feeling about it was as somebody who doesn't have anything invested in the game and, you know, and as somebody who has a sort of aversion to blingy blong of the hithery throth and all the rest of it was that I found myself more engaged with the characters than I thought I was going to be. I did find myself enjoying it more than I thought I was going to. I think it is a great big, big lumbering behemoth in which you you do have you you, you do you do see Duncan Jones struggling to put his thumbprints on it. But I did feel those thumbprints were there. I think there are jokes in it that actually made me laugh. I think there are some moments of spectacle that made me gasp, and I enjoyed myself watching it. And I was quite, I'm quite surprised to see that um, of all the reviews that come out, there's been a lot of a lot of negativity. And you know, I understand. Okay, fine. I mean, I I really didn't like John Carter, and I can see that this could be read by somebody as John Carter. Personally, it looked more Duncan Jonesy than I expected it to, and I I kind of went with it in a way that surprised no one more than me. What are the reviews in our final uh, section? Oh, uh, well, the big one, of course, is Love and Friendship, the new film by Whit Stillman. And we'll also do uh, Mon Wa and some other things. We'll do what? Mon Wa. Is that my king? King. My king. All right. Emily Wetherill says, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to your show today. So after three weeks of non-stop work, I'm taking the bank holiday off and your show will get me through the last few painful hours of sewing, trimming, pressing and steaming until it's all done. Big what's up please to my sister and cinema buddy Ola who's been working equally hard at Cambridge on her dissertation and you find similar solace and release in your witterings. We're both very busy. Anyway, and a lot of people coming to the end of their... So if you're a university student, you, you know, maybe you're fully engaged in the exams, maybe you're just easing off 
because you've done that dissertation. And also maybe people coming to the end of AS levels and, you know, all those things. And all those. Which, I mean, at least when you and I were at, at school, you had a gap between what there was then O-levels the and lower levels. six. The lower six was a DOS, Yeah, basically. It, was, it was basically did nothing, did you? <laughs> it was just did nothing to do. That's the thing. Speaking of education, Catriona Clark yes. says, you might like to know that your witosphere of influence is spreading. From September 2016... Hundreds of Irish students in the 14 to 16 age bracket will be cracking open brand new English textbooks and reading of your, quote, brilliant podcast. Really? When they get to the chapter on film studies. Really? Yeah. The authors had, <laughs> no. yeah, the authors had originally cited it as being, I quote again, incredibly brilliant, but I, the editor, got rid of that superlative as I thought it sounded slightly fevered. I... I did, however, leave the pan reference, though I know how you feel about it. I'd like to thank these leave authors, Dee and Thomas, for introducing me to your in- incredibly brilliant podcast. Yeah, it says in the text, so this is in the textbook, okay. al- along with a photograph of you and me looking a lot younger. Yeah. If you want to hear discussions, reviews or interviews about films, listen to, listen to the brilliant Kermode and Mayo Film Review Podcast. Incredibly brilliant. You can download this podcast from the BBC Radio team or look up these specific clips on YouTube. For example, look up the interview with Hugh Jackman talking about his character in the film Pan. Oh, I see. Fine. I love yeah. the fact that there's a BBC Radio team. Anyway, thanks to Catriona Clark for putting it. We're now in <coughs> in a textbook in Ireland, even though we are only brilliant and not incredibly brilliant. Yes. But thanks. And there's a photograph of the textbook as well. Brilliant. And stuff. Incredibly brilliant. Very, very good. Indeed. Very pleased. Thank you very much. So what else is... Uh, what else? Oh, well, you're going to do TV, TV Movie of the Week. Now I'm going to do TV of the Movie. Now you're going to do TV Movie of the Week. I feel like I'm driving this show for you, Simon. Even though you're... In Southampton. Many miles away. Diana James says, yes. uh, it's the prestige for me, one of Nolan's best and most brilliant performances from Bale, plus my favourite Bowie film role ever. I think Mark will go for Man on Wire, great documentary that deserves a look. Richard Walker, always the prestige, still my favourite Nolan film, and the first Scarlett Johansson movie that didn't annoy me. <laughs> also Bowie. Al Gale, Mark will probably go for Catch Me If You Can because it's Spielberg and Hanks, but I'd take the prestige, Nolan's best film that even a wooden David Bowie couldn't ruin. Oi, Mark oi, Gorman, oi. I thought that the prestige, it is possible to criticise David Bowie. Even no, no, I mean, it's possible for me to go oi, oi, oi. Yeah. Oggy, 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 indeed. <laughs> Mark Gorman, I thought that the prestige was a wonderful piece of filmmaking and would normally go with that, but Robin Williams was simply brilliant in Goodwill Hunting, and it's always good to recall the gift of his presence among us and how much he is missed. Uh, so, TV movie of the week, what is it then? I have to tell you, it's a split decision. Of course, um, I'm going for The Prestige, and we've sort of talked about The Prestige before. In many ways, it's the Nolan film that that kind of got overlooked at the time, and yet now many people hold up as, you know, arguably his, his best work. David Bowie's performance is absolutely brilliant, and it turns out his accent is much closer to uh, what that character really would have spoken like than, than, than you expect. It's a film with... Uh, you know genuinely dark edges and it's it's it kind of throws back to the intricate uh construction of something like memento but it's a large performance piece and i really really like it but i do also want to flag so um the prestige is on uh 11 p.m on saturday on bbc2 so that's a fairly sort of mainstream uh, time at least as far as we're concerned i would also like to flag up that on tuesday the 31st at 1 a.m Sorry, okay, on the, we are uh, expecting it. 
uh, on uh, Tuesday the 31st on Film 4 is I Wish, which is the uh, Harakazu Koreeda film, which is the story of these two brothers torn apart by parental separation. They come to believe that the passing of bullet trains that connect their respective homes will create a magical vortex. And it's, I mean, it's a really wonderful film, splendid use of uh, real-life brothers, Ashiro and Kokimeida, um, who have performed together for several years, it turns out. And uh, the original Japanese title is The Miracle, which is considered you know, by some people to be slightly more appropriate. It is such a lovely, intelligent, really, really wonderful film. So I Wish by uh, Hirokazu Koreeda uh, on uh, Tuesday 31st of May on film four at 1am in the morning and The Prestige 11 o'clock on Saturday night on BBC Two. Both are absolute winners. So uh, we got 15 minutes left. Uh, what is of interest to you, Mark? What okay, you so see? let's do Love and Friendship, which is the new film by Whit Stillman, only the fifth uh, feature by him in 26 years. He came on the show, uh, I think, when he made Damsels in Distress. Anyway, very, uh, really lovely filmmaker. This is an adaptation of an early epistolary Jane Austen work. It takes its name from Love and Friendship, misspelt in Austen's original, but it's plot from uh, Lady Susan. And it is an absolute treat and a delight. I mean, actually, you know, Austen has always been a big part of Stillman's uh, work. He, he Very early on, one of his early films uh, was sort of partly inspired by Mansfield Park. He attempted at some point to do a work which was going to put to fuse together the themes of the Watsons and Sanditon. Now we have this, uh, which stars Kate Beckinsale as uh, Lady Susan Vernon. She is widowed at the beginning of the film we see her leaving uh, an estate amidst uh, rumours of impropriety she is then going to go and stay at her in-laws estate where she is going to work her social magic she is somebody who is known as a flirt somebody who is known as a manipulator somebody who is known not to be trusted and throughout the course of the drama she will meet suitors and detracted uh, and detractors alike all of whom she will run rings around by virtue of the fact that she is smarter and sassier and more intelligent they are her uh, the original source is epistolary so it's letters in this what happens is Stillman basically takes those letters puts them together turns monologues into dialogues and her confidant in both the source and here is a character which is here played by Chloe Savini as uh, Alicia Johnson here's a clip congratulate me my dear Frederica's aunt and uncle have taken her back to Churchill I thought you'd grown to enjoy Frederica's company so comparatively a bit but I'm not so self-indulgent as to want to wallow in the companionship of a child. Lass, I fear this is our last meeting, at least while Mr. Johnson is in life. His business at Hartford has become extensive. If I continue to see you, he vows to settle in Connecticut forever. Oh, you could be scalped. I had a feeling that the great word respectable would someday divide us. Your husband I abhor, but we must yield to necessity. Our affection cannot be impaired by it, and... In happier times, when your situation is as independent as mine, we will again unite. For this, I will impatiently wait. I also. May Mr. Johnson's next gouty attack end more favourably. <laughs> I absolutely loved this. Uh, the first thing to say about it is it is really funny. It is really genuinely uh, sort of bitingly satirically funny all the way through. Um, there's a lovely thing that it's a use certificate film. Therefore, on the BBFC website, it says contains no material likely to harm or offend. But what it it's, it is the most politely impolite movie of the year. It is really it, what it does is it adds a sort of modern twist uh, to uh, Austin, but it does it I think in in a way which is completely in keeping with the source material and draws out 
about the sort of the rich, saucy comedy and is brilliantly played. Kate Beckinsale is absolutely fabulous as uh, Lady Susan Vernon. There is one performance that everybody is referred to, which is Tom Bennett as James Martin, who is, she is attempting to marry or she's attempting to marry her young daughter off him although any suitor for her young daughter also seems to be somebody who uh, has eyes for uh, lady uh, susan and what happens all the time is that she is spoken about as somebody who is devious somebody who is wicked somebody whose, whose, whose schemes must be stopped and yet we the audience like all those around her just immediately fall under her spell because she is such fantastic company but tom bennett as sir james martin plays this fantastic bumbling fool a kind of comic comic creation of whom richard curtis would have been proud like one part jane austen to two parts blackadder's gormless george uh the film is very very uh, handsomely put together with unfussy camera work which detects in the irish locations and makes very very good use of them and superb uh, costume design made absolutely with love and attention by somebody who's in love with the source material and somebody who has spent his time thinking his way through what it is that he likes about these characters and played to a T by a splendid uh, uh, um, uh, ensemble cast all of whom appear to be sinking their teeth into this rich material with real gusto and verve. I laughed like an idiot the whole way through I want to go back and see it again. It's already gone into my list of one of my favourite films of the year. Wow. And I know it's only, where are we now? It's nearly so halfway through the year. If this isn't in my top ten of the year, at the end of the year, I'll be very surprised. It's called it's called uh, uh, Love and Friendship, and it is perhaps the epitome of the well-done you. And is it, uh, do you think, of interest and an appeal to people who would think, I really... You know, Period drama, it's not my thing. Okay, here's the thing. Here's here's the test for for, for whether or not this film will work for you, okay? Mm -hmm. Take two fingers, put them on the inside of your wrist. Do you feel a pulse? If so, then go. That's straightforward, then. (laughs) Simon, I've just seen Money Monster. This is Andy and Harkin. I thought it was a very clever film by Jodie Foster. Combined tension and humour, told an important story at the same time. Enjoyable and entertaining. Sam Blakely in Dewsbury. I'm writing to ask a request of Mark and to thank him for helping me enjoy an otherwise widely panned film this very day. Which was? Could I ask that all reviews of upcoming films from now on are broadly negative? This way, listeners like me, who take the good doctor's word as gospel, can go into the cinema with our expectations sufficiently diminished and actually enjoy ourselves all the better. Which was the one that I... In in that particular case that I... I've just come out of seeing XMA. XMA, fine, yes. Mm -hmm. X-Men Apocalypse. That is definitely a form of bicycle, isn't it? And as a result of the bad press, was ready to watch a damp squib of a movie. Instead, what I got was a moving, surprisingly funny and genuinely tense action flick, which I may even go back and watch again. Wow. I'm sure there were many problems with it, but I was so distracted by the likeable new young characters, the fascinating new powers and the terrifying new bad guy that I didn't really notice them. Thank you, Sam Blakely. But I I mean, I didn't pan it. I didn't pan it. I just said that it was it was very average. Does that count as a panning? Did, would that have massively lowered one's expectations if somebody says something is just average? I mean, I said it's not Batman versus Superman. It's not Captain America Civil War, but it's just very average. Yes, yeah, funny. Average should be a kind of way of saying it's it's okay. It's but okay. average by implication means very disappointing. Yeah, but that isn't. If, I've just had an average pie for my tea. Means. I was disappointed with my tea. Okay, if somebody says to you, if you ate something, you didn't say, how was that? You go, fine. Right? Do you take that as meaning it was a fine pie? Or do you mean it was all, you know, 
Uh, you... Normally, if someone says fine, it's usually a child, and you've asked them how the day went, and they just said fine. How was the exam? <laughs> they... Fine. How was games? Fine. How was, how was school? Fine. fine. How was the whole of your life so far? Fine. fine. Meaning, back Go off. Away. <laughs> back off, granddad. That's... I'm going upstairs to play Green Day. Yeah. But I think, you know, if you, <laughs> if you get an Ofsted yes. and it says average, that's not good. You have to be exceptional. Okay, all right. Well, I'm well. I'm sorry, but the thing is, it, not all movies are good, and not all movies are bad. Some are kind of mm, meh, meh, which isn't an official Ofsted term, by the way. Okay. Uh, right. What else is out there? Okay, so let's do a Monbois, which is I think was up for the Palme d'Or at some Cannes. I don't go go to Cannes. So I'm not entirely sure. So the latest film by May Wen, French uh, actress and director. It's a drama following a lengthy relationship between two uh, middle-aged Parisians and it's seen essentially a tale unfolds in flashback from the point of view of the woman who is recovering from a broken leg we're told at the beginning that she has these uh, this, this leg injury and complications with the knee and there is apparently something to do with knees that is somehow tied up with um, with memories and and being unable to move on from something in the past, which is something I didn't buy for one second. Then the film flashes back to this relationship of Vincent Cassel and Emmanuel Bocot, who are a, restaur- a restaurateur and a lawyer, uh, respectively. They meet in a nightclub. Um, she flicks water in his face, reminding him that years and years ago she had met him where he would do that to introduce himself to people, to catch their eye. It was a sort of flirty technique that he used. So she's kind of got one over on him. He is this incredibly charismatic, incredibly uh, hyper, incredibly manic character, not a million miles away from, let's say, Richard Gere in... Is it Mr Jones? Is that what that film is called? Um, yeah, there's the sort of Richard Gere, sort of manic, depressive movie, although this is just the sort of the charismatic, manic side of it. He is somebody who is either incredibly charming or incredibly annoying or probably both she is swept off her feet by him she's down to earth but sort of swept off her feet by his almost immediate declarations of love and their relationship then plays out in this hypokinetic style in which we jump backwards and forwards around in time he is overwhelming but also unbearable and manipulative and abusive she is loving but untrusting and the film has this kind of raw quality like you do feel like you're right in the middle of a domestic row and some people have taken very badly against it peter bradshaw who is a reviewer who i like very very much um and he's i have to say his, his judgment is very good said on this he said it's an, an unendurable confection shallow narcissistic and fake and I think that that may be an adequate de- description of at least one of the characters in it but it really made me start thinking about you know we've discussed this quite a lot on the program films which have characters who are not likable whose company you find intolerable does that make the film unlikable and intolerable and the honest answer to it was I actually didn't find that because I found that although he was an insufferable person to be around I found his depiction of that insufferable person worked and I believed in him and I believed in her and oddly enough although their relationship was completely you know absolutely nerves exposed everything on the outside i did believe in them now i can understand that that might simply uh you know 
alienate people they might think this is this is just too overcranked and too full of itself and too pleased i didn't feel that what i felt was actually it was a portrayal of people i wouldn't want to spend more than five minutes in their company but i believed in them while they're on screen and more importantly i believed in their relationship and i believed in the way in which the relationship played out and the tensions and the ways in which it erupted and they would fall apart and fall back together again that they had this destructive relationship that was also as i said uh, you know abusive and deceitful and was to do with addiction and all these other things and actually i did find it i did find it quite engrossing so I, I surprised myself because I know other people who have reacted very much the other way, but I actually found myself being engaged in it, despite the fact that on the surface it looks like the kind of film that would really annoy me. We've only got about 90 seconds, but is it, is it worth mentioning Top Cat? Is that, Top a, Cat is begins, that a sort of a half-term thing? Top Cat begins, starts with a joke about uh, Batman Begins, and then it descends into an origin story of Top Cat. So we get to see Top Cat uh, rounding up the gang, you know, most specifically uh, Benny, and then all the others, and then doing the stuff now here's the Do thing we have the music um we have a version of the music uh you remember that there was a top cat movie a few uh years ago i think now must have been and uh what i couldn't understand was why on earth you would take something like top cat and turn it into this sort of big screen fiasco in the case of this it was really tooth gratingly terrible it was for a start the cinema that we watched it in it was incredibly loud so uh nothing you could do could get to get the thing out of your head i mean i thought what i'd be able to do was just simply cruise through it if you are old enough to remember Top Cat, then you are in the wrong age demographic for this film. If you are not old enough to remember Top Cat, then I don't know what you would be doing going to see this, which has got loads and loads of kind of weirdly inappropriate and referential jokes that won't make any sense to anybody whatsoever. And it just seemed like I do not understand who this is designed for. The screening that we were in, at one point... Uh, uh, two women came in brought in a very very young child child immediately started screaming and they immediately took the child out again and my only feeling was i'm with that kid movie of the week oh love and friendship by quite some distance while Ru you were while you were talking about top cat there yeah on the t i've got six televisions in the studio <laughs> have you you probably haven't in your southampton studio i've got bbc news 24 i've got the cricket i've got uh, the uh, indian cricket on two, I've got me on another one. You've got you on. A, are you watching yourself? I'm watching myself. Yeah, I don't know why it's me, but whenever I speak, it cuts to me, and whenever I stop speaking, it cuts to a wide shot, which would normally be you, but you're not here. So, <laughs> anyway, while you were talking about Top Cat, there was an ad break on one of the TV channels, and it was a Top Cat ad, but Top Cat was advertising mortgages. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes, but I he have. Lives, he lives in a dustbin. He lives in a dustbin. So he, yeah. he wasn't very. He lives successful. in a dustbin. He advertises mortgages, and his whole point is he's a total con man and a fraudster. And yeah. isn't and isn't the point of the advert that doesn't Topcat actually manage to get a mortgage? I don't know. I've, uh, I mean, yes. I, I've some, somebody else mentioned this to me as well. Yes, I haven't seen the advert, but it's it's yeah. It, of all the of all the. Uh, JP cartoon characters you could get to, because when when you have a mortgage company what you really want is solidity and you know trustworthiness and all that stuff top cat is not the thing you're looking for what are the chances if you live in a bin of you getting a mortgage depends depends if the bin is in w1 simon where's your bin where's it's, your bin it's w1 fine yeah. here's here's a million quid yeah that well actually that's there's um down in uh, there's a place down here called uh uh Muddiford and there are beach huts 
on it. And some of the beach huts now would go for the kind of money that you buy a house for. You're not allowed to use it as a house, but it's like you use a beach hut. And it's the same with um, up by uh, Warberswick and, uh, you know, the the place down the way from there. Southwold. Southwold. Those beach huts that they have there. People are paying tens of thousands of pounds for beach huts. What? what I, Top Cat probably talked them into it. It's a hut on a beach. Can be, they can be very convenient. And a, and a cup of tea that's made in a... This is all going to get removed because there's no way that Robin's going to let this stuff go through. You're, he's not even listening. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Simon King says, I've recently been signed up... He's, a, he's got a problem here. I've been signed up to crew a ship that is playing a part in the new Christopher Nolan film, Dunkirk. Oh, Wow. As a 39-year-old avid film fan and history enthusiast, I became very excited about joining in on this project, as I've never had the chance to be involved in a film production before. I once walked into frame of a NatWest advert that was being shot on the local high street, but I don't think that counts. When I volunteered, I thought that we would just be background, you know, set dressing, making up the numbers, a small fish in a big pond, and thus would be able to relax and casually observe the goings-on of a major film. Maybe take some photos, drink some beers, enjoy a free holiday. It now turns out that our boat will be playing a much bigger role. Period uniforms are being issued. We've been told that we have to be clean-shaven, walk uh, about the decks, and the possibility of major A-list actors being on our boat is now being banded about. Now, my level of excitement has moved up the scale to slight nervousness. The more I think about it, the more nervous I get. What if I have to do a scene with possibly the greatest actor of our current age, Tom Hardy, and crack under the pressure, stare directly at the camera and scream hello to Jason Isaacs? It's going to be very difficult, isn't it? Yeah. You know, um, Chris Pine was asked to be in it. Um, Christopher Nolan got in touch with him and said, would you be in the in the new movie? And uh, Chris Pine said, nah, Dunkirk. Very good. Thank you. That's a, that's a good joke. Thank you very much. If Simon concludes, could uh, Mark reassure me and tell me that everything is going to be okay and to stop being a silly boy? Everything is going to be okay and stop being a silly boy. There you go. Uh, we'll get to DVD of the week if I can find the piece of paper. But anyway, you wanted, you said you wanted to oh, well, let's just do very, a movie. Very quickly, because, yes. I, because I watched it, let's do uh, The Trust, which is a new film starring Nicolas Cage and Elijah Wood. It's one of those thrillers that doesn't really know what it wants to be or doesn't want to be. It starts off as a story about two uh, cops who are working in the evidence room and looking after evidence and bagging up evidence and then Nick Cage says oh I've got something going on where it turns out that I know that there's uh, there's a stash of something and why don't you join me in this kind of illegality and then it turns into a story about bad cops and then it wibbles around and doesn't know where it's going and can't quite decide what what kind of tone of film it's going to be and halfway through the screening uh, the projector suddenly went black and uh, the screening was delayed for about 20 minutes and everybody sort of talked to each other and said do, you, do anybody else know what's going on anybody else know what the tone of this film is meant to be anybody is it meant to be funny whatever it is and then they got the projector back up and running and then they ran the last 20 minutes of the film and then we all came out and went no still didn't have any idea what it was meant to be other than the fact that it's a pretty much a straight to DVD movie that seems for some completely uh not understandable reason making a brief appearance in cinemas but it's absolutely designed for home viewing where frankly if you were watching it and uh, you fell asleep halfway through and you woke up after a little bit you wouldn't it wouldn't make any more sense if you watched the whole thing from beginning to end it's called the trust i didn't yes maybe i'll i'll give that a little miss i think because um we've got to that 
point. Actually, just before we do DVD of the week, yes. can I mention um, Ruth McCormick, who's 15? Yes. She's in Sheffield. She's come up with another lachrymosity syndrome. Oh, yeah. Because we've done the Arles, but this uh, is... a. I think she's discovered a new strand. She's writing on the subject of diaphils, which is deep in a flu lachrymosity syndrome. <laughs> Until last Tuesday, I'd never experienced any kind of lachrymosity syndrome in any of its known forms, but on this particular fateful night, I was feeling rather under the weather, so I cancelled my plans for the evening, took some painkillers for my cracking headache, yeah. and settled down to watch a film to hopefully improve the situation. I ended up choosing The Muppets Movie, a personal favourite and a film I would sure would cheer me up. A very good choice. Anyway, fast forward about five minutes... And there were tears streaming down my face. Then about ten minutes later, there were tears again. In the first 15 minutes of the film, I had cried twice, twice, at the Muppets. Thankfully, by the end of the movie, I was happy and well again. Though that could have been the painkillers. Looking back on it, I'm sure that this must have been some mild lachrymosity syndrome. And I'm just wondering what you have to think about this. Has anyone else experienced diaphils? Well, I imagine if you're... Because if you're poorly, you are just more... Uh, emotional, yeah. I, so yeah. I, I think you probably are. Yes, but I mean, I, uh, to be honest with you, I find myself susceptible to to lachrymosity at almost any time, whether I'm above the weather or under the weather. It doesn't make any difference. I mean, I'm always in favour of a good cry. Okay, well, so so Ruth, yes, you're almost certainly right, and many other people have suffered from diaphils as well as owls and other types of lachrymosity. In fact, David Badil was tweeting the other day about how he was on a plane and had he suddenly was. started crying, and then yeah. everyone jumped into him and said, yeah, 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 I think you should listen to this podcast because uh, Mark and Simon were talking about it first. There's a whole word for it that you just have to get up to speed with. That's the one. So now uh, it would seem an appropriate moment to bring you our wonderful cheesy music for DVD of the week. <laughs> yes. The secret to having young-looking skin is simple. You need to be very young. But if it's pale skin you're after, protect from direct sunlight by enclosing it in a house or flat. And be sure to protect it from the luminous brilliance of your ever-expanding DVD of the Week collection. So let's hear your choices and your predictions for what Mark will pick this week. Tom Maybe says, I'll pick Independence Day as I think... The Wittertainment DVD shelf is missing something in the big, dumb, fun genre. Mark will probably pick Ride Along 2 because of his deep-seated love of Kevin Hart. Stuart Yates says, I'll pick Goosebumps. It's a fun film. Harks back to children's films from the 90s, such as Jumanji, Hocus Pocus, great story, maybe a little scary for young children. And when you see Slappy the Ventriloquist doll, you will automatically think of Jimmy Carr. Ryan Dalton Rodriguez says, as Mark is a massive football fan, he'll choose Bobby. Paul Green says, Mark's going to pick Rams for the dog. I would pick Youth as it is stunning. And, yeah, that's about it. I think that's uh, enough coherence. But what is our DVD of the week? Well, unsurprisingly, it is indeed Rams, which is an absolutely wonderful Icelandic black comedy about two brothers living in a secluded valley who are completely estranged, who seem to join together only in a best Rams competition, which has become a sort of symbol of their estrangement. But when the valley is threatened by the spectre of Scrapey, can they pull together to uh, protect the ancestral herd? It's a film which is at the same time hilarious and heartbreaking. It has absolutely brilliant musical accompaniment. It's 
very cold, very dark, very bleak, but also very, very sort of starkly funny. And, you know, people often talk about what what does tragedy comedy mean? Well, Rams is a perfect example of tragedy comedy. I absolutely loved it in the cinema. I've seen it again on the small screen. It works just as well. And it's it's a real treat. Rams. 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 R-A-M-S. Rams. Yes, Rams. From Iceland. Yes. Rams, that is. Then. Rams. DVD of the week, Rams. Ra- the, maybe, arguably, Paul McCartney's finest solo album. Isn't that just called Ram? It is just called Ram. Yeah. But it's very good. And Do you think that's better than Band on the Run? Well, it has... I'm sure Ram has got Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey on it, and I think that is a fabulous track. What about Red Rose Speedway? Um, well, I still think... I think... Uh, Actually, Band on the Run, probably. Yeah, I think Band on the Run. Band on the Run's pretty brilliant all the way through. I think we should probably add... I think my... Actually, my favourite Paul McCartney song is Old Siam, Sir, by Wings. It's absolutely unrecognisable as Wings. Wow. Just that I mentioned that. There was a brilliant documentary in which Denny Lane talked about his reservations about being in Wings... And he said, well, the thing that he was worried about was obviously, you know, being in a band with Paul McCartney, there was a possibility that Paul McCartney would overshadow him. Yeah. It's Paul McCartney. I think he probably did, actually. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to put Old Sam, if it's okay with you, I'm going to put Old Sam, sir, on the playlist. And and a Wings track of your choice. A Wings track of my choice? Yes. Uh, Jet. Very good. Anyway, that's that's very good. Mark, thank you very much indeed. You've been thank fabulous. You. And and so are you. And we're not here for uh, for for a for a whole fortnight. No, but it is the, but it is the dream team. No, we're standing the, in for us. No, it's not. We're the dream team. It's the uh yeah, it's they they're good. Ben Bailey Smith, James King, and Ben Kingsley. And remember when he's good, he's very very good, but you can't complete that because Sir Ben might be listening to the podcast and then he'll say, <laughs> "I'm not going on that show. We'd be messing it up for them." <laughs> yeah, so it's Ben Bailey's with James King. Uh, enjoy your um, your uh, half term. That's the one. And you, bless you. <laughs> or load of cobblers. That'll get included as well in the will. Simon swears at the end of the podcast <laughs> sequence. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. BBC.co.uk slash 5 Live.